that's a testament to getting older, that you want to help. There's a natural, maybe it's in our genes to to give back, to mentor, to, to share. Maybe it's even ego. I often think that. Welcome to Midlife Mixtape, the podcast. I'm Nancy Davis Coe, and we're here to talk about the years between being hip and breaking one. Where do I belong? Tell me why I'm here and what's taking this long. When can I move on? I'm ready. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash midlife mixtape. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash midlife mixtape for your free audiobook. Hi there, and welcome to the Midlife Mixtape Podcast. We are on episode number 10. That's right. We have hit the double digits. I'm Nancy, and uh, you know how I always chit-chat at you at the beginning of the podcast before we get to the interview? Well, this week I interviewed someone who let drop in the first five minutes of our discussion that Prince once crashed a party he threw, so there's no way I'm distancing you from that conversation. We're getting right to it. My guest today is Jordan Brady, who began his career as a stand-up comedian, touring nightclubs and colleges in 49 states across America at age 18. His first big break came when MTV tapped him to host a game show. Since that time, Jordan has made mockumentaries before that was a thing. He's directed independent films, and he's made three documentaries, and we'll talk about all of that. His alternate passion is directing commercials, and he's made more than 800 national spots. Finally, Jordan Brady hosts a weekly filmmaking podcast called Respect the Process, so we'll get to it. Take it away, Jordan. Hello, Jordan Brady. Hey, Nancy. How are you? I'm fine. I'm very glad to have you here today. I got to tell you, I cannot believe I'm actually talking to the writer and director behind Dill Scallion. So let me tell you, I thought Dill Scallion was a fever dream I had when I was a mother of a toddler and a newborn. So this movie of yours came out in 1999, right? Yeah. And and I know Roger Ebert called it a country music spinal tap. And at some point I was nursing, I was up with a baby, I don't know what. This movie comes on TV and I'm like, this is the funniest thing I have ever seen. And then I couldn't find it again. I didn't know what that movie was. I, You know how it is with your, when your kids are little that you're so forgetful and sleep deprived all the time. And I'm getting ready for this interview and I'm like, holy crap, he's the one who made that movie. I'm so blown away that that's, that was your jump off. That was your lead right there. I didn't even know I was going to have a chance to talk to you in my life. So I will post a link, everybody, to to this movie. And if you can find it, it didn't, it's not, is it on Netflix or anything like that? No, no, it's, it's a long story for another time. But basically, the music rights ran out and they'd be too expensive. Oh. oh. Right? Well, and you some can... of the music I, I own. I actually, I wrote the songs in the movie. Are you kidding? The, yeah, that was a cash cow, by the way. That's a write your own soundtrack people thank you so much it is like a a, um, it's a mockumentary before that trend was really even popular i'm really proud of it but i'm so surprised you brought it up it's just been a long time i warned you if you came on the podcast i was going to have a a, an initial question we have a kind of a baseline question here what was the first concert you ever saw and what were the circumstances okay the 
first concert was in Richmond, Virginia in like 1980-81. Earth, Wind, and Fire came to the Coliseum. And in those days, you know, I'm growing up, I'm from Ohio, I moved to Virginia, a lot of my friends into the Southern Rock, the Molly Hatchet, the Leonard Skennert. I'm into a little ACDC, but the funk was <laughs> fire within. <laughs> so I went to that concert with like the one person I could find to go with me. But the most memorable concert was a, about a year, year and a half later, was Prince, the Controversy Tour. Are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding, because Zap, Roger Troutman and Zap, one of the more sampled people in hip hop today, were they were the opening act. The time was the middle act, and then Prince closed the show. Oh my god! And, and I went on to see other Prince tours in 1999, and you know a- everything after. But that one, that I mean, that really that's a fork in the road from Southern rock to funk. Yeah, you were to, opening up your horizons then. I never looked back. Yeah, how could it, you? It was also like a, uh, an eye-opening experience into sexuality, too. Like, who was this guy? Mm-hmm. And it was crazy. There's some phrase that I see go around Facebook every once in a while, and I don't know who to, to credit, but somebody who said, Prince is the only guy who will show up at a party looking better than your girl, and he will leave with your girl. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Hey, so let, me, let me tie it all together. So huge Prince fan, right? Right. So we premiered the movie in Minneapolis, where we had a lot of uh, investors, because it was an indie film. And Sheryl Crow did- Wait, some- which movie? Are we still talking no, about Dill Scallion? Scallion? What? Okay, go on. Sheryl uh, Crow did some of the score to the movie. So she shows up and is going to play this acoustic set at our party. And there's rumors, Prince is going to show up, Prince is going to show up. So lo and behold, the concert's over. We're in the green room. And now, you know, Peter Berg, Lauren Graham was in Dill Scallion, David Koechner, who's an anchorman, Billy Burke is a star. They've all gone on to, to do big things. But at the time, they're actors supporting this indie film. And we're like, well, where's Prince? We turn around and there he is. What was he wearing? He was wearing like, well, stilettos. Of course. Right? They were kind of up to the, above the calf. mm and a little jacket and a frilly shirt like you would expect. It's like his Tuesday kick around outfit. Right. I always I always wanted to do like a sequel to Purple Rain, like Velvet Hail, where it was <laughs> it was Prince shopping at the grocery store with the heels and the long coat and he's pushing the grocery cart down the aisle and he stops to talk to the butcher. You know, which which cuts leaner. Checks over which cans don't have dents. <clears throat> right. Ladies the Hormel chili. Yeah. All so right. That's well, when that's I, that's that, when I met him. That's oh when I met gosh. him. And, and then he, we exchanged a few pleasantries, and poof, in a puff of purple smoke, he was gone. He disappeared. That's the only way he traveled, obviously. Right. All right. So you know, oftentimes because I'm talking to people who are at around the half century mark, um, it's hard to give the job title in one word. So I have to cut it down. And in your case, you know, you're a filmmaker. But to paraphrase Joni Mitchell, you've seen life from every angle now in terms of the entertainment industry. You 
were an actor in the late 80s and 90s. You hosted a game show on MTV in, in the 90s, uh, Turn It Up, which I went back and looked up some old clips on YouTube. And I want to tell you guys who are listening, if your kids ever need inspiration for their hairstyles for an 80s party that they're going to, look up the Turn It Up videos because the girls who are contestants had used a half can of Aquanet apiece. I promise you. That was a strange time because it was it was uh, early in the 90s. So there's some remnants of big hair from the 80s moving into the new wave look of the 90s. Right. So it's and what? How would you describe your hairstyle when you were a host? What what did what do you want to call that? Well, I mean, it has its roots in the mullet, which an ode to a mullet. It's an ode to a mullet with a little bit of like British soccer cut. There you go. So. Acting, game show, then you turn to directing and you've done features, commercials, documentaries. I'm wondering, is there a job in the film industry that you haven't had yet? Like maybe craft services? I did craft services. You did? Uh, yeah, recently. My wife is a filmmaker and she was doing a uh, this piece on this wonderful young dancer. And he, he had specific dietary needs to pull off his uh, dance routine. Wow. And uh, I was like, oh, looks like I'm getting the chicken sandwich. I guess I'm going to be the gluten-free chef for the day. And you have started a podcast that I I really recommend to all you guys. I am a cinematic dummy. I don't know anything about the movies. But Jordan's podcast, Respect the Process, is fascinating because the people who he interviews on that show are the ones who are behind the scenes doing all the magic that you don't even know is happening. And you've got cinematographers, you've got audio engineers, you've got people who are building the sets and whatnot. So talk to me about what interests you in telling those stories and sharing those stories. Nancy, respect the process has often been called the Rosetta Stone of filmmaking. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I wish I, I ca- came up with that. I called it that three times this morning. So yes, just, no, just walking around the house to myself. Just, just randomly. Yep, Rosetta Stone. Here's a here's a thing, and and I think this this will speak to the audience. And I've you know I said I listened to the show, and I love the guests you've had on there. And I got to a point where a lot of people helped me when I was a bad actor. You know, when I was a game show host, people helped me as I explored other opportunities in the business. Like, hey, how do you direct a multicam? game show. And they said, well, come up in the booth. We'll show you what we do before you go out there. Mm-hmm. You know, when I did this reality show that there were lots of directors and field producers and, and sound men and women that would teach me things. Like, oh, you know, you make sure you want to put the microphone here. And so uh, why, why not share that? Why not help people with the tools we have now, like a podcast? So you don't have to be necessarily in the, you know, I was, I was given these opportunities and fortunately, people helped. Well, now you can put the information out there and help people not reinvent the wheel. Right. And I think that's a that's a testament to getting older, that you want to help. There's a natural, maybe it's in our genes to to give back, to mentor, to, to share. Maybe it's even ego. I often think that, you know, like maybe it's just narcissistic that I think I have so much knowledge I have to share. But it's a true feeling, you know? You learn these tricks. Why keep them to yourself? Well, that's see, that's the other thing is when you put it out there that you want to help, someone will say, oh, what we do is this. Especially young young filmmakers. There's men and women that have grown up 
their film school is YouTube. Right. And they'll say, oh, did you see this clip where the guy did this? And, oh, we don't do that anymore. We just hit record and let the computer sync up the audio. And then you're, a light bulb goes off and you're like, wow, old man, you've been doing it by hand for all these years. <laughs> so I, I know that's not a very good example, but it, it, it creates an exchange of, of information. So mentoring is not a one-way street. No. Not at all. And you, even beyond the, the the long list of things that I mentioned in terms of being actively um, involved in the in in the film process, you're also teaching other people how to do that in a more formalized basis with your commercial directing boot camp. So can you talk a little bit about what that is, but also what you get out of that as a teacher? Well, Nancy, everything you need to know is at commercialdirectingbootcamp.com. I thought you were going to say it's the Rosetta Stone of, of uh, commercial directing. No, no, I, no, I it's also that. that. But you why do you, what do you love about teaching it? Well, it's the same thing as the, it's an extension of the podcast, really. Mm-hmm. But it's it's highly focused. It's a niche. Like if you want to make a feature film or you want to make a short film or a web series, you can learn some of the like leadership techniques that I think a, a director has to have. But that's not really why you would take it. I mean, we I have actors take it, creatives from ad agencies take it, so they know what happens when their script gets sold to. Clorox or whoever, then they go make the commercial. They have Mm -hmm. a better understanding of what's going in. But that's what I I get the same thing out of teaching the the boot camp that I do interviewing people one on one for the podcast. We were just emailing a little bit before we talked, and I was kind of tickled at how quickly we were confessing our failures to each other, and the and talking about the fact that people don't like to talk about failure. And I wondered, actually, I want to start first. Did you see? Was it two weeks ago? The New York Times had a whole story about how colleges are now teaching classes designed to help students acknowledge their failures because they the the people who are college age now have been trained so hard to present this perfect package to admissions offices and certainly to i think present this curated view of themselves on social media and so when they do experience failure they don't know what to do with it and you and i kind of acknowledge you know I, i'll i'll talk about my failures all the time i have no problem with that so what do you think first of all about having to teach students how to admit that they are not perfect? First of all, I have not read the article. I hope you put a link up. I'll put a link up. With with the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I did not know that because I remember telling my kids when they were like 16, like when you go to get a job and you go to get in college, if you've got pictures of you on Facebook doing crazy party stuff, people will hold that against you. So I do believe in somewhat of a curated public profile. Right. And, and thank goodness there was no Facebook or Instagram. Can you when even I was, imagine? Uh, when I was in my 20s, it'd be like me doped out in a dress playing a trumpet <laughs> and with, a, you know, like a llama or something. And it and, and first Prince, of all, in a purple and, smoke case, purple smoke and, and high heel boots. The, and the problem is I look really silly with a trumpet. <laughs> but <clears throat> So I'm I I believe in in keep I still believe in in curating what you put out there for the public and keep some things private like the llama alpaca different story different story totally public but I yeah I I have no problem I thought it was more of a leftover trait from the baby boomer era that you you know you didn't talk in the, the baby boomers you know they don't say the c word cancer they don't talk about I mean I mean back then right right. 
You wouldn't talk about if someone got cancer, they got sick. You wouldn't talk about divorce. That was like, oh, your crazy aunt. Right. Uh, you know, it, now people own it. Right. So I didn't know that that was a problem with the younger generation. Well, I think it goes part and parcel with the helicopter parenting. You know, obviously I'm drawing a giant stereotype and not not everyone who's a millennial or younger is is buying into this stuff. But I do think the college admissions process has gotten so competitive that it puts even more pressure on kids than they're already getting from trying to present this persona in social media. I think it's just unrealistic. And I've talked about this in past episodes. One of the things that I think is really good about me being a failed novelist is that my kids saw me go through this years-long process of writing a novel that's still sitting in a drawer, and it didn't break me. You know, I'm okay. Now I'm a, now I'm a podcaster, so everything's fine. It all worked um, out. This was this was yeah. the journey. Yeah, but you talked about the fact that you had, I guess, and especially around the Great Recession, you had some pretty negative impacts from that. And you've obviously come back as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about that adventure and, and what do you think you, how it's made you who you are today? Oh, yeah. I mean, I can, there's two things. Uh, before the recession, I went from indie film to film to film and made a bunch of these films and none of them became these blockbusters but at the time, you know, you've got a three, I had like a three picture deal at Warner Brothers and a three picture deal with working title and I'm developing this script. And, and then one of them comes out that's just a total stinker. And you just, the, it's like air coming out of a balloon and zipping around the room. And, and when you fail publicly like that, you take a, professionally, you take a hit. It's a brutal industry it's for a, that kind oh. of thing. It's like, who, what, what have you done for me lately? Mm -hmm. And that's an 80s reference. But. I saw Janet Jackson in my mind's eye. Yeah, very appropriate for the audience. Mm -hmm. And I went back into commercials, which I had started simultaneously around the time I did Dill Scallion, actually. That led me to in, into commercials. And I said, okay, I just have to focus on one thing. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe I was splitting my attention too much. And I, I went what I thought was going to be three years turned into, well, now like 15 years of commercials, just straight commercials. And I love it. And I think, well, had I not failed with those features, and by f I'm being mean when I say fail, like they were, were all our, our worst yeah, critics, right? Yeah, they were modest flops. Had I, and they were great opportunities and a great learning experience. Like I'm, if I could go back now with the knowledge of a thousand commercials under my belt, I would. I would knock it out the park, but I didn't. So why bitch about it? Right. So I just embrace those failures as learning experiences and, and like rug burns on my character to get a little better and to maybe learn a little humility. And so I get, I get back to the top and then the recession hits. And I, I remember taking my two sons to see the big short. And before we went in, I said, you know, your old dad is part of the problem that they're going to explain in this movie. Because I took the jumbo. I signed. I didn't read shit. I just started signing things. I got a jumbo loan and a combo loan and a second one of those loans. Mambo loan. I got the mambo loan. I got the a Zumba loan. Did you have I a Black a Cobra loan? No, what's that? Are, I don't even know. But somebody's probably developing it in the back room right now. <laughs> I had a limbo loan. You had to go really low. <laughs> and then and then I'll never forget 
between and I got divorced right at the the height. Bought a house at the top of the market, got a divorce when I was making good money, and then the shit just went and hit every fan around. So I'm I remember going I can't I can't do this. And here's here's what was interesting. Like I talk I mentioned the you don't say divorce, you don't say cancer. You also grew up paying your bills. Like you know, I pay my bills on time. Right. I remember calling Bank of America saying, "Hey, I'm really struggling with this house. Can I work out a deal? Can I refi can I lock into the variable before it explodes?" And they go, well, no, we, we can't offer you any assistance, Mr. Brady, because you've paid all, all your mortgages on time, payments on time. You have to be, you have to be at least three months behind before we can talk to you. And I'm going, okay, let me get this straight. So you can't help me because I'm doing what I think is the right thing. Right. And they said, exactly. So I stopped paying for like six months and then they worked out a deal. So I, you know, I got out, I sold the place and, and I mean, I remember literally being down to like a couple of bucks and, and saying, okay, well, I got to, I got to work harder. I'm not very educated. So I have to work like 120% harder to make 80% of what a smart person makes. And I think we're back to you being extra hard on yourself, Jordan. I think you do okay. But is that, so when you came out of that, were you kind of like, okay, more commercials, what else can I do? The commercial directing boot camp. I mean, did you start thinking of like different ways that you could apply your talents that would generate revenue? A little bit. It wasn't as driven by revenue. I mean, it, commercials, it, I knew that I had to work harder. And I think that that taught me a, another lesson in humility. Like you think, damn, didn't I go through the humility lesson <laughs> in the early 2000s? How many times do I have to learn this? Right. So, so it wasn't as driven by revenue. However, I mean, the podcast was very simple. I lost a job to a guy that I've competed with on and off for 20 years. And, and I remember saying, fuck that guy. Because he, he got the big, like, six-day Kmart job. Right. I was like, fuck him. And I had won some, and he had won some back and forth for, for years. And I'd always heard his name. And I was like, what? A, man. And then... I sat there and I took a breath and I laughed and it was a very Buddha-esque moment. No, not fuck that guy. Congratulations to that guy. He didn't beat me. He just won. Right. He must, he must have had a great idea. And so I reached out on Facebook and said, hey, congratulations. Because you can't reach out if you win, right? Hey, right. sorry you didn't hey. get it. Just and, want to spike this. Right. He started, we started talking back and forth. We went to lunch. He's like, man, I did a 25-page treatment. I thought you were going to get it. Remember, you got that one. Oh, uh. And I just realized it isn't, the fight isn't against the other. Yes, it's competitive. But it's, it's really, am I bringing the best ideas to the table? Am I working late to write a great treatment? Have I thought of this from every angle creatively, blah, blah, blah. And, well, and, and also, that's, that's what started the podcast. It was like, oh, I got to talk to these people. And sometimes you do all that stuff and it's, you still don't win because you're just not the right fit. And I think that learning to not take that so personally is a real sign of maturity and a, a means of reaching peace a little bit. The world is subjective, right? Oh, so God. my husband and I have a phrase we use. It's, it's not always all about you, Jose. It just means, you know, let it go. You don't get to control everything. Amen. So you've made three 
documentaries. The first one is called I Am Comic. Second was I Am Road Comic. And you've just, uh, you're about ready to release I Am Battle Comic. So do you want to give a quick background on what I Am Battle Comic is all about? I was, you know, I was a stand-up in the 80s, in the heyday, into the 90s, with another stunning haircut. I bet. And a lime green suit with shoulder pads. Can you send me that as your as your picture that I can run with the... No, that's okay. I've got a good picture. You can Google. You can Google. It, it's there. So uh, I got tired of people on set. I mean, specifically, I remember Dan and Yogurt, young clients going like, hey, we found this clip of you on YouTube in this green suit. What was it like being a comedian? <laughs> and I'd answered that question so many times. I go, I'll just make a documentary. Mm-hmm. So I made, I made I Am Comic. And there's Sarah Silverman, Louis C.K., Janine Garofalo, Tim Allen, Phyllis Diller, Roseanne Barr, like all these comedians. Carrot Top. Carrot Top and Jeff Foxworthy and Louis C.K. all in the same movie. So oh my God. it's, you know, there's 33 flavors of ice cream. Then a guy sees the movie, goes, hey, you want to work this club? And I was like, well, I don't do comedy for 20 years, but I'll do it. So I document that. That becomes I Am Road Comic. It's got Mark Marin and TJ Miller and Maria Bamford. So it becomes this little cult thing. So then another guy says, hey, do you want to go to Afghanistan? We might go into Iraq and you can entertain the troops. And I'm going, well, I don't do comedy. So sure, I'll go and do that. And so I went last year to Afghanistan, Kuwait, the Kingdom of Bahrain, and parts of the Middle East I cannot disclose due to uh, government regulations. And performed for the uh, the troops, but more importantly, I documented the guys that do it all the time. Right, and and you you get it comes out August eighth everywhere. And if you buy the film directly from jordanbrady.com, he will donate 50% of the proceeds to the National Military Families Association. So you guys, Correct. I got a chance to see this before I talk to Jordan and it is first of all, Jordan, let me tell you, I got right. the parrot joke right out of the gate. I was laughing. The parrot joke worked for me in the first iteration, but it was so moving. Um, First of all, it's funny, obviously, you're following four very talented comics, but there was a moment where I was crying so hard I had to put my head down. I mean, and then just these scenes of our military in these really desolate, far, far away places. I've been thinking a lot about this. So our parents generation grew up in World War II where every family had someone or knew someone who was fighting, right? So it was very egalitarian. The boomers had essentially the same thing because of the Vietnam draft, you know, it was very, it was spread pretty evenly across American society. But I think starting with our generation, I feel like if you want to put your head under a pillow and pretend that there's not a war going on, you can almost do that depending on who you are, you know, where you live. I mean, I only know a couple veterans around my age personally, one of whom is my priest, by the way. But I and I think millennials are going to be in the same boat too, where it's kind of segregated. And I think at the end of the day, that's pretty shitty because you have this population of people taking the risks and putting themselves in harm's way. And we're all the way back here, kind of weary of this 10-year, I don't even know what it is. How many years have we been fighting Afghanistan? 17 years, you know, it feels like it's been going on forever. And I felt like I Am Battle Comic did a really nice job of just for two hours reminding you that, yeah, this is going on. This is real. These are your fellow citizens over there. And they're so young. They're so young. 
first of all, thank you for the the kind words. And it's only eighty nine minutes. Eighty nine minutes. <laughs> but I thought about it for until the until the two hour mark hit, and then it's, I thought about it some more. It it changed my perspective. I still hate the war. You know, when my kids were little, we we protested uh, the first Gulf War, and and still hate it. The kids over there, the men and women that serve, they're less than one percent of our population, and and they're all volunteers. And I dis, you know, obviously there were no weapons of mass destruction. That's what got us over there. But it, I have to put that aside. And after talking to the troops and seeing what they go through, it's like, well, yes, I could say we shouldn't be there. And I do. But the fact is we do have men and women there now. So while they're there, we have to support them. And equally as important, the families, like, the wives and the children and the husbands that are back home while their spouse is deployed, and not just in the Middle East, I mean, all around the world. Sure. They're, they're there, and the, the families really pay a price. I can't imagine. I text my kids every night and every morning, and I can't imagine not having some sort of contact on a daily basis. And my kids are grown, so you know they're the same age as those, the, the troops, a lot of the people that we entertained. So I, I imagine I hope, that the command, I mean, the people in charge are probably our generation. It's probably Gen Xers, right? Uh, you know, there. Uh, I had a brief flirtation with the Marine Corps when I was in college to to pay for school, and I I couldn't. It wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. But the but the guy across the hall was like, I love that program. My friend Doug, he became a tank commander. He's been to the Gulf several times. He made a career out of it, and you know, he's my age. Right. He's. So, yeah, they're the senior officers now, or our our generation. So what do you wish that people back home would do differently to support the troops and their families more effectively? Militaryfamilies.org or militaryfamily.org. They probably own all the URLs, but they send kids to camp and they deal with troops when they come home and they have PTSD. They, you know, there's no, there's a boot camp that indoctrinates you to Mm -hmm. go to war, to go in the service. They need something when they come back. To, uh, so I would like people to see the movie and just give a smile to the troops when they come home. Say thank you for your service. Yep. Or just just smile at the airport. Or donate That's, to the USO. I, did, I had not thought about that, that that was privately run. And they're putting on these shows and when you know, take them out of the war for a couple of hours. Why not find a local charity? Helps veterans and the families. Like, there's... There's local charities where you have a more direct connection. And it's not really, I mean, you could argue that it's supporting the war, but I don't think it is. I think it's supporting the people that have volunteered to to protect us. Well, I'm going to put up a link to your site where you can, where you guys can uh, purchase the movie. It's opening uh, on screens on August 8th, though, right? It's it's also going to be... Um, There's a few screenings around mm-hmm. there, but it, VOD, Video On Demand, iTunes... That's so it, it's really it's really been uh, a emotionally and creative fulfilling journey to do the movie. Well, I urge you guys to check it out. It was really worth the eighty nine minutes plus. So, last word, Jordan. What one piece of advice do you have for younger people, or that you do you wish that you could go back and tell yourself? I would say learn a little humility sooner than later, mm-hmm. and and don't post uh, pictures of yourself that are incriminating on Facebook. With llamas, obviously. 
All right, Jordan Brady, thank you so much for your time today. It was Nancy, wonderful talking with me. you. Yeah, yeah best I'm of luck with the film. So how about you guys? Any of you get a Mambo loan, a Zumba loan, or the dreaded Limbo loan? Does anyone have a llama story from college they'd like to share? Get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you think of the show. And if you have any suggestions, you can email me at dj at midlifemixtape.com or find me on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Midlife Mixtape. So I hope you'll find me there. Don't forget, if you're in the Bay Area, that I'll be DJing to benefit Bay Area food banks on August 12th at the Cat Club in San Francisco. And you can find details on midlifemixtape.com or on the Facebook page for Midlife Mixtape. So the latest development is I got a new shirt to wear that says, wait for it, I'm not internationally known, but I'm known to rock the microphone. Yeah, that's what's going to be on my T-shirt that I'm wearing in the DJ booth. So if you see a wrinkled blonde wearing that T-shirt on August 12th, come say hi to me. Introduce yourself. That's it for this week's show. Join me next time when I talk to Ann Powers, NPR's music critic and correspondent. And I am trying so hard to keep the squee out of my voice when I talk about this. I'm really excited to talk with Ann. She has a brand new book coming out in August called Good Booty. Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul in American Music. And you guys, I'm almost done reading this book, and it is every scintilla as good as that title promises. So join us. Have a great week, you guys, and thanks, as always, for listening. I don't want to be this, don't want to be that, don't want to give up, I want to give back, I want to be free by whatever means, whatever you want from me, I want to be the Back. I wanna be free by whatever means Whatever you want from me I wanna be, be, be I wanna be I wanna be free by whatever means